talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Living the dream. Here's Scott Thompson. And why not? It's Wednesday. And, and, and let's mash it up as well. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today, and Will Weber is on the board. Lisa Pileski, Dave Woodard in the newsroom. All right. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, since this whole occupation slash protest slash uh, insurge or whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, has started, um, it's pretty much because uh, it was as it was starting, everything else was kind of uh, COVID related, was kind of tapering off, which is kind of odd because it started as you know the same but uh, so the, the the protest sort of continues as the uh as the restrictions slowly open up and bc's opening up a bit more today uh and so on and and this thing kind of just uh, keeps going and going and it, it's very bizarre uh so i'm just watching out of the corner of my eyes i'm trying to talk to you uh they're bringing a pig in so uh, this is on. This is in Ottawa, uh, downtown, at the protest slash, slash occupation. They've just brought in a, a pig on a on a spit. So you know they're there for dinner anyway. I'd say. So uh, what has happened today? Uh, earlier this morning, uh, they started handing out tickets, meaning police or police liaison people uh, going through. Um, uh, the protest sort of truck by truck and banging on doors and they had a printed sheet uh, which basically says this is the emergency act and here's what happens if you don't move and blah 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 and they went around handing those out to various people as you can imagine the reaction was one of communication to one of just throwing it on the ground sort of speak so uh, that's where we are now so they've sort of uh I, and experts say this is sort of the first stage they one more time go in although many are going what day is this this is day 20 tomorrow it's three weeks uh, aren't we a few weeks late in reading the riot act? But anyway, uh, that's what's going on right now. And that, um, you know, over a period of time and nobody knows what this is, but they figured they'll probably go in in the daylight hours in the next 24 hours or so and, and, uh, start this process, whatever it is. I, I have no idea if that's what will happen or not. This is just pure speculation. Um, but the first stage of this has started in the sense that police are wading in through the crowds and, uh, and handing out this sheet of paper, which basically says, uh, here's what the emergency act means and where do you fit in all of this? So, uh, that is what's going on now on the streets of Ottawa. Other than that, uh, they're, like I said, I, they're roasting a pig. So it doesn't seem to be having too much of a, an immediate effect. Uh, but, you know, I guess in this process, you have to give fair warning before um, you move in, so to speak. So a question period going on now at the House, and it is pretty fierce, as you can imagine, uh, as I guess the rest of the country just kind of waits to see what happens and how this will uh, unfold. Uh, obviously, uh, the debate of the Emergency Act, that still has to be approved, by the way, uh, in the next day or two. But here's what Justin Trudeau, and was questioned at question period, um, you know, constantly it still is in regard to using this sort of measure 
uh, as opposed to uh, something sooner and something, um, well, a little bit more in line with what we're seeing at the borders and such. Uh, And this is what the Prime Minister had to say about uh, the Emergency Act. What we have done with the Emergencies Act is put forward tools that the local jurisdictions of law enforcement can use in partnership in Ottawa, for example, with the OPP and the RCMP with extra resources to actually make sure that laws are enforced in a proportional way, in uh, an approach that will be decided by the police. All right. And here's what uh, Michael Barrett, Conservative MP, had to say about all this. And that's to have a conversation with, with people that he obviously fundamentally disagrees with, but instead he's, uh, he's cast them aside and, and, and called them names. So uh, to skip right to the Emergencies Act, um, the implications of it are far-reaching. The effects that it has on civil liberties in Canada is, is, uh, is chilling. And, um, I, you know, he, he certainly hasn't made, made the case. All right, John's on the line. Quick, John, what are your thoughts? Hey, how's it going, Scott? So far, so good. Good, good. I, hey, I want to start off. I got... Two points to make. One, I want to say congratulations to uh, Bill Maher for calling out Trudeau on almost paraphrasing Hitler. You know, I guess the only thing that Hitler said, we need a final solution, and Trudeau said they're misogynists and racist. But uh, they both said the exact same thing when, why do we tolerate these people? Um, Anyways, and another point I wanted to make was uh, that uh, one thing that I think that all media outlets should be saying on a daily basis is telling people like I have a five-year-old son that goes to school. Now they're mandated to wear masks at school, even outdoors on the outdoor property. And one thing that isn't talked about is wearing the surgical masks outdoors in the cold, how condensation builds up in the mask, starts getting the mask wet. The mask gets wet, especially this is surgical masks, not cloth ones. They start breaking down. Those masks start breaking down they start causing serious lung damage. This is like a lot of things that doctors who are actually dealing with COVID patients, not bureaucrats like Dr. Kieran Moore. I'm talking doctors like Dr. Marcia Fulford, Dr. Peter McCullough. You know, John, we'll, 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 we'll ask that next time we get a, uh, a, a medical person on yeah, in regard to the masks and using them outside and specifically in regard to the cold weather. Thanks for that. Uh, much appreciated, John. In the ongoing occupation slash protest, whatever you want to call it, in Ottawa, police uh, earlier this morning started uh, handing out information, uh, an information piece of paper on the Emergency Act and, and ramifications and such to get an update on where this is all going and what happens next. Let's bring in Amanda Connolly, senior political reporter with Global News and is with us now. Amanda, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a very busy couple of weeks here in Ottawa. So what's it like now in Ottawa? Uh, we understand that the, the uh, protest has shrunk a little bit, that it's been confined more to downtown. What can you give us as a bit of an update on what's happening today? I think what you're going to be experiencing in terms of the, the effects of the convoy right now really depend on where you live. Again, it remains heavily encamped throughout the down, downtown core. As you mentioned there, the footprint of it has shrunk over the past couple of days here. Still a significant number of streets that are completely blocked off, though. However, um, for example, I live kind of right downtown in the heart of the convoy here. I won't kind of get into exactly where, but um, definitely we, I have had you know traffic kind of backed up in front of the area here for the last three weeks. It has moved up by about a block over the past 24 hours. It has cleared off now. So I guess a little bit of progress there, but certainly uh, still quite a bit of work to do and, and real uncertainty heading into the weekend here with both a winter storm on the forecast and Family Day, of course, coming up. 
Oh, yeah, the Storm and Family Day, my goodness. Uh, so has the complexion of uh, of this protest changed? Uh, obviously, it started uh, three weeks ago. To, uh, tomorrow will be three weeks. Uh, now uh, we're seeing the, um, the police handing out pieces of paper regarding the Emergency Act and such. Um, is it just the diehard that are left? Who? How do you describe who's left? That is a bit of a tricky question. The reason I say that is because there is quite a mix in the crowd here. There are certainly, we've heard from police, um, quite a large number of children that they believe are present here with their parents. Uh, Roughly a quarter of the vehicles still encamped in Ottawa, police say, have children in those. That's obviously been a a, a point of concern for them and any potential action being considered. At the same time, we've been hearing from federal officials uh, as well as police saying the people who remain in the city at this point are the ones who uh, have the potential to really be the most volatile, who are the most committed. Uh, we heard today from Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino as well saying that there are now uh, extreme, his word, extremist leaders on the ground in Ottawa. Uh, he did not name individuals or name groups involved there, but suggested that there are links between the people who were arrested recently in Coots in Alberta and the people who are here in Ottawa at the moment, again, we don't have details on that right now, but certainly this comes after police were saying, or the federal officials were saying yesterday that they, part of the reason they had issued the Emergencies Act was because of a concern about the potential for serious violence due to political and ideological motivations among those on the ground. Uh, we've seen uh, police handing out pe- uh, pieces of paper uh, this morning, I guess, describing what the Emergency Act is all about. Uh, we understand this is sort of the first phase of all of this. What can you tell us uh, as far as how these have been received, what it actually says, and what the next step is? Yeah, for sure. So the, the big question here, I think, really still does come down to enforcement. We don't know at this point whether police have um, a clear plan or a deadline in place to get the blockade uh, to an end, to remove people from the areas of the city here. Again, there are, there are several points around the city where there is a presence of these individuals. And so still a lot of uncertainty here with the path forward. I just want to stress what we did hear, though, today, of course, was from police, as you mentioned, handing out notices to people who are still on the ground downtown, telling them that they must leave the area now, that anyone blocking the streets, anyone blocking infrastructure um, can be arrested for mischief for a number of different reasons here under the Emergencies Act. Also saying that um, the people of uh, the people of Ottawa are being denied the lawful use of their property, that this is causing businesses to, to, to close down effectively. We've seen a number of them who have not been able to open up their doors again as a result of the presence of, of the convoy and concerns about um, often, often that has come down to concerns about safety. So um, again, a lot of factors kind of coming into play here and, and really, I think a lot of uncertainty among everyone watching this, local residents, people who are working again, covering this, this story as it continues to evolve around exactly where this will go next. I was just watching some footage, Amanda, of them bringing in a pig on a spit. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to end any time, well, certainly by dinner time. Um, do you see this uh, <laughs> still being here on the weekend? I think, you know, it, I that that's a difficult question to answer. And again, yeah, obviously, obviously there is no answer there. Ama- I, there is no answer, Amanda. That, but, but, but think, I mean, what would the town's reaction be if, man, the weekend, this thing's still here? You know, I think at this point, um, uh, the the perception from a lot of people uh, here is that it would it would likely take a lot to move them out 
by the weekend. They are just there again. There are so many um, yeah. kind of infrastructure aspects to this that have been allowed to set up and build up on the ground here that um, I think there is, it's unclear at this point how police would even go about removing those by the weekend, just the sheer logistics of that. And so, I again, we are hopefully expecting to hear more about what these plans could be, kind of what the, uh, the thinking is around this during an Ottawa police services uh, meeting or police services board meeting later on today. Uh, and, and again, really a lot of, uh, we, we've heard the councillors pressing for answers from the police over the past kind of 24 hours here and really not a lot of answers being provided by police. Wow, unbelievable. Amanda Connolly uh, in Ottawa, day 20, uh, and uh, police uh, starting to hand out uh, uh, notices in regard to the Emergencies Act and what happens after that. Uh, we're going to wait and see. Senior political reporter Amanda Connolly with us, Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight for more on all of this. Amanda, thanks for the time. Good luck. Uh, be safe. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Uh, a couple of things on the table today. Uh, Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. You bet. Good afternoon, Scott. Always a pleasure. So uh, let's start, Christian, with what's going on in Ottawa. Obviously, earlier on this morning, we saw police handing out uh, these notices in regard to the Emergencies Act. Your thoughts on where we are now? Well, I guess this is sort of the slow incremental pain approach. Uh, Try to keep on turning up the heat on the occupiers. And look, they're not protesters, they're occupiers. It's unlawful activity. You know, protest is associated Mm -hmm. with proper, legitimate democratic protest. This is no longer legitimate democratic protest, especially when some of them are calling for the downfall of the government. That's sedition. Uh, I still find the approach uh, rather optimistic. I mean, uh, we've been trying to get them to go home for two and a half weeks. I'm not sure that handing them a notice that they need to go home is going to change a whole lot about their determination, resilience, resourcing, leadership, organization. You know, I I still think this is a rather homeopathic approach. Um, I have two problems with it. Um, one is that um, it, that uh, it's it's stunning to me that we have to invoke the Emergencies Act to get a handle on a few hundred protesters who set up camp in uh, downtown Ottawa. Like this is the state has been completely absent in terms of demonstrating that we will enforce the rule of law in this country and that this activity just simply is not acceptable. You know, where's the at least psychological intimidation in terms of the water cannons, in terms of the tactical teams? You might not want to use them, but at least park them in sight of the protesters to show that the state is actually present and is serious um, about, uh, about enforcement. The other challenge that I have with what I call this rather homeopathic strategy um, is that uh, we've created perverse incentives that other protest groups now know uh, if they want to that this, if you want to get the government sort of to to pay attention, you just engage in disruptive protests. So you know what's the next thing that we're going to haul downtown Ottawa in order to disrupt public life and get attention? This is why I think the government needs to show some uh, some real presence here and some real resolve because uh, we need to discourage others from. Uh, disrupting our political, social, and economic life this way. And you can bet that uh, the dictators in Moscow and in Beijing are paying close attention to which groups they need to support in Canada in order to bring out democratic life to its knees. Oh, my. Um, Yesterday, we saw Ottawa's police chief resign. Is this all the police chief's fault? 
Oh, by no means. Look, I think um, first, I mean, the, the three levels of government have all made like grave mistakes here. And I think Peter Slowly has been handed a dog's breakfast that he's basically had to pick up. I mean, I think he's done his best with the resources that he has. Within a couple of days, he called for the fact that the Police Services Act does not give him the powers to deal with an occupation or an insurrection, as he called it, um, and that he simply didn't have the resources. I mean, he has a municipal police force. But I think like the broader lesson here is just how terribly postured we are in this country in terms of law enforcement, intelligence, and national security. Look, mm. I mean, we're hobbling along, and when the system comes under minimal stress from a couple of thousand protesters, we see the system completely collapse, um, yeah. you know, with the the lawlessness that's going on. I thought like this is an absolute embarrassment for Canada and for Canadian democracy. And it shows how naive we are, right? We're smug Canadians. We sort of have this attitude that we don't really need any of these sort of state mechanisms because look, these bad things only happen to other people. They don't happen to us. And then we go out and we lecture other countries how they should be running their protests and negotiating with their protesters. Well, here, I think the, uh, it shows that for while our allies have been innovating significantly in intelligence and law enforcement posture as a result of the globalized and geostrategic changes in the nature of the threats that we're facing, in Canada, we're sitting on our hands. And so, you know, my conclusion from all this is we need a royal commission because the fundamental obligation of the modern state is to provide safety and security for its citizens. And so we see a colossal failure at all levels of government here to provide for the most basic function that citizens have in terms of expectations of their state. You know, you're right. You hit the nail on the head, Christian. You know, many times Canadians just stand around and puff their chest out like they're better than everybody else until something like this happens. Uh, one more question about the Emergency Act. Uh, we talked about this before, and you said, obviously, bringing in the military, uh, not the best solution here. What uh, What about the relationship between the Emergencies Act, uh, Emergency Act and the military? Does that change anything? Um, not really so at this point. To the contrary, I think it's a signal that the government is determined not to bring in the military because, uh, as you and I had spoken before, my hypothesis was the reason why people were talking about the military is you've got to get these pickup trucks out of, uh, you got to get these trucks out of the town, downtown. Mm -hmm. And so you need some, some mechanisms, some instruments to actually get, tow these trucks out. Um, and if you're not going to ask civilian operators, the only organization that has the flat loaders and vehicles that could do that and the skilled personnel would be the military. But I think the government is continuing to bank on the fact that they can commandeer civilian operators and that they can melt down the number of occupiers in, in Ottawa to the point where um, basically the vehicles will stay there and the people themselves will go home and then they just need to tow them off the road. You mm. know, I wish them good luck. You know, this is, uh, you know, we can all hope for the best that this pans out. But, you know, my view is hope is not a method. What's your method for actually ending this lawlessness? All right. Uh, give us a quick update about what's happening along the Russia-Ukraine border. Uh, Canada obviously sending weaponry now, wasn't at first, is now. Uh, but we are we hearing conflicting reports about whether Russia's scaling back or not, are they? Well, I mean, in terms of Canada's contribution, better late than never. You know, it's kind of like, uh, mm. you know, we're, we're, you know, somebody expressed it this way that, you know, we're bringing the ad appetizers while the rest of our allies are already on the dessert. You know, we're a little bit late <laughs> to the party here. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't really look like the, uh, like, like the strongest supporters here with, you know, we wait for everyone else to move and then we're always the last mover. You know, when are we actually going to show some leadership and some determination in actually, you know, we talk a lot about the, rules-based international order, but what are we actually doing to defend it? 
um, what's the, the, the Russian claims about sort of moving troops away and so forth. I mean, you can't trust anything the Russians say, right? So it's like, you know, it's, it's all a propaganda war. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see sort of how this plays out. But I think it's interesting to see uh, what we've watched over the last couple of weeks, like the, the U.S. warning of a Russian invasion. Like finally in the West, we've clued in that we need to play in this information war game and we need to call out the Russian moves before the Russians actually make those moves. In 2014, we made the mistake that we didn't unclassify the intelligence. And so the Russians owned the information sphere, you know, with the little green men that subsequently, of course, turned out to be Russian soldiers and Russian special forces. And so this is an effort, I think, to get out ahead of the game. And so even when the Russians say they're withdrawing their forces, you can see the Ukrainians, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, sort of indicating we've seen no movement of that. We're always trying to stay a step or two ahead of the Russians to point out their persistent lies, their persistent disinformation in the space. Uh, and so I think uh, we can only all hold our breath that uh, uh, our strategy to uh, try to contain Putin's uh, revisionist efforts here um, is going to be sufficiently strong to dissuade him from military action because military action doesn't really have um, necessarily a whole lot of upsides for him either. Mm. So he might be trying to use this as a negotiation strategy to see what he can get out of the West now that the West has shown that it might be willing to negotiate. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, Fellow at the macdonald Laurie Institute. Always a fascinating discussion, Christian. Thanks for the time. Be well. Scott, wishing you and the listeners a lovely afternoon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As well as what we're seeing going on in Ottawa. Uh, obviously, a uh, few days ago last week, we saw the same disruptions happening at various border crossings, including uh, the Ambassador Bridge between Windsor and Detroit. A uh, massive, massive supply chain corridor uh, that was stopped for uh, a week. And, and we certainly knew what happened as a result of that as uh, we saw factories start to slow down or shut down and, and goods pile up at one side or the other. Uh, some say we've become too reliant on these border crossings. What other options do we have? Let's bring in Ambarish Chandra, Associate Economics Professor with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Ambarish, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks. So, uh, as you mentioned, there, there's only so many of these, especially in Ontario. We certainly know uh, what it's like going to and fro and what happens when one comes to a stop, is certainly uh, as well as uh, uh, trade and such, uh, even through the pandemic, but uh, disruption through protest, obviously. Um, does this happen enough to warrant another option? What kind of options do we have in order to become uh, less dependent on these corridors? Well, one option is under construction right now, which is a bridge right next to the ambassador or close by, uh, the Gordie Howe, yeah. which is um, supposed to come online in a couple of years. And, you know, that'll help a lot. And really, we should have had an alternative to the ambassador years ago. And, you know, we couldn't do it because of, there was a lot of stalling from the U.S. and from the owner of the ambassador bridge. But that's finally coming online. So that's good. Uh, but it's, you know, something like this, you know, the problem is we're still reliant on these bridges. I mean, all of this traffic, most of this traffic goes through Ontario, and Ontario is separated from the U.S. by, you know, either lakes or rivers, and so you need bridges to cross them, and the, those bridges become choke points, and so it's not great. We're, we're, 
always reliant on some bridge or the other. Um, so even when the Gordie Howe comes online, that's not, you know, um, a great situation to be in. Uh, you were talking about the new bridge, Gordie Howe, the Gordie Howe coming online. Uh, is that what we need here? Is more uh, infrastructure, more than just this one that's coming online? I mean, that'll certainly help because right now the ambassador is, you know, carrying something like a quarter of all of our uh, land-based trade, um, which is, you know, a huge amount for a single bridge to handle. Plus, it's a privately owned bridge. So, you know, the owners of that bridge can always raise tolls and so on. Uh, by contrast, the Gordie Howe will be Canadian-owned and, you know, Canada's government gets to set tolls and keep the revenues. So that'll definitely help. Um, but it's still the case that, you know, uh, whether we whether these trucks enter at... Detroit Windsor or, you know, at the Peace Bridge or at um, the Blue Water Bridge, they're still crossing these bridges. A lot of them are old. You know, the Ambassador Bridge is almost 100 years old. The infrastructure isn't that great. Uh, we we hear many uh, when infrastructure tries to get built, uh, especially on the environmental side, people saying we shouldn't be going this in, in this direction. Uh, um, we should be looking at other means under uh, other ways. Uh, how do you balance that with building more infrastructure to to get into the United States? I mean, we we simply have to do it. There's, <laughs> there's no, yeah. you know, trucking isn't. Uh, and the trucking and the bridges that that support it are, you know, not the worst w- way means environmentally to get goods to and from. We'd much rather do that than send goods by air, for example. Um, so now it's true we don't have to rely on bridges. There's, you know, Ontario is actually the one province in Canada which is separated by water. Every other province that has a border with the U.S. is separated by land, and you can just build roads and highways and. You know, Quebec, for example, is a quarter of the country, but it only accepts about 10 or 11% of the trucks. So in a bigger picture, a big long-term strategic plan would be to think about routing some of those trucks through Quebec or through, you know, any part of the land border that's west of the Great Lakes. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've sort of ended up in the situation with Ontario being the, the, the sort of center point of all of the trade in the country, you know, partly for historical reasons and path dependency. And, you know, that's what that's what's led us up to where we are right now. Is it time for the country to re-examine its highway infrastructure? And, and not only that, but any infrastructure needed for um, energy, for uh, technology, uh, telecommunications and such. Is this something that, that we should be paying more attention to? I mean, in, in the big picture, of course. Uh, but, of course, we, we only pay attention to these things when a crisis happens. And then, mm. we, of course... You know, it's natural we forget about them when the crisis passes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that you know Canada's government for many years, you know, various governments have recognized the over reliance on the ambassador, and that's why they pushed for this alternative. Um, I do think as part of a longer term strategic plan, something that would be a 15, 20 year plan, one could think about more efficient ways that are less reliant on just two or three key bridges. Uh, that would require some, you know, um, far thinking. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> yes. And how much of that do we have, especially as we're coming out of a global pandemic? Although maybe it's a time for change. Maybe this will be uh, the instigator. And Barris Chandra with us, Associate Economics Professor, University of Toronto, and uh, the Ambassador Bridge, the closures and, and border closures in general, what they mean to the economy and other alternatives for that. Thank you so much for the time. Be well.
Thanks, Scott. Ottawa City Council is meeting and uh, obviously talking about what is going on in their city as uh, police earlier on today handed out uh, notice notices basically reading the riot act saying what um, the emergency act is all about and uh, making sure everybody has got one of those or saw one or understands exactly what it is and then um, who knows what's going to happen at this point it's all speculation uh, moving forward but obviously one of the major problems is uh, not only having people that are that are literally camped out down there but also the amount of heavy equipment and vehicles that that are down there uh, that are going to be have going to have to be removed um, eventually uh, in all of this. And you certainly probably heard uh, stories of uh, it's, it's really hard to get the tow truck industry involved in this. And now with the Emergencies Act, uh, what does that mean for the tow truck industry? Uh, let's bring in Mark Graves, president of the Provincial Towing Association of Ontario, and is with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much. So what's the mood uh, in around tow truck drivers, operators, uh, owner-operators, what have you, in regard to the protest? Obviously, this is the trucking industry. Uh, they want no part of it. Is that accurate? Well, you know, the, the towing industry as a whole um, has, has all said we want to stay neutral. Um, you know, it's, it's not up to us to, to clear up the... Up, up what's going on from either either side or either point of view. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we make our living by, by supporting the trucking industry, um, and we also want to comply with government, um, but this issue doesn't involve tow trucks until the government makes it involve tow trucks. Um, you haven't seen any tow trucks park out and camp out in this protest. So mm. the industry itself is, is, is very neutral at this point. Well, not only neutral, Mark, or yeah, it sounds like you're stuck in the middle. Well, well, yeah, that's about as neutral as we can get, right? Yeah, um, you know, it, you know, we're stuck in the we're stuck in the middle, and 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 there may be hands forced from one side or the other that could drastically affect um, the safety of our of our uh, operators and and our equipment and 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 future work. Um, so there's there's a lot of factors here that. I don't know that the government has has looked at in, in invoking this, you know, like the fact that they say that they can um, take our tow trucks and do the jobs. Well, who are going to operate them? Yeah. Don't grab a million dollar tow truck and, and start moving things. That's how uh, people get hurt. That's how things get broken. So does the emergency act, Mark, allow them to do that? Theoretically, if you own a towing company, they can come in and say, okay, you got to tow these vehicles. It's, it's part of the emergency act. Well, we don't know that yet. Um, yeah. We reached out to legal counsel and, uh, and asked them, you know, what can they do? And until it passes the house and until it's, it's through and, and, and voted in, right. and what they vote in is put in on, on record, um, then we can't get legal counsel as to what our responsibilities are, or uh, what we can can say yes to or no to. Um, so, so our hands are tied to understand the legal ramifications of, of this until they basically want to say, okay, now we're going to do it. Well, you know, as much time as it takes them to get this through the house, it's probably going to take that or longer to get uh, legal. Uh, council as to what the rights of the towers are 
And, you know, you were, you were saying earlier, you know, many will think or, or will say, you know, 90% of the industry is, is vaccinated. So what does it matter if, you know, uh, the fringe element per se is, is, is angry with you? But you bring up a very valid point. It's also the safety of your drivers and everybody who's down there trying to, trying to manage this. Yeah, well, I mean, the industry itself has, has not said anything about vaccinations or, or, or the yeah. reason for the protest or anything. And, and like I said, that's, that's not the cause for concern uh, as, far as, as far as we know from the industry. Um, the, uh, you know, we work for the trucking industry every day. That's, that's our life. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you, know, you know, where is the military in all this? The government owns tow trucks. The, the military has, has yeah. stuff. Why, why are they not? Why are they imp- implying that a, a private industry has to come to the rescue when the government has the stuff to, the means to do this? So, Mark, just to the average person who wouldn't know, how long does it take uh, to move uh, an 18-wheeler, providing it's just parked there? There's no real issues. How long does it take to move it? What does it cost to move one? In, in good conditions, in good conditions, towing a, a transport off the road properly, separating the units, pulling drive shafts, caging brakes, airing systems up, all of that type of thing, an hour for, for a tow truck and an operator. Um, that's if they want it moved. Yeah. You know, when they don't <laughs> want it moved, this could be a, a Her- Herculean task. And any idea what the cost per truck would be? Well, again, that's hugely variable depending on what it is, yeah. what type of truck, yeah. uh, where it is on the road, where it's going, how long it takes you to do the work, are you being interfered with? You know, it's, it's impossible to put a number to it. And, and, and at this point in time, it's impossible to say whether our men would be working in safety, all of the, uh, all of the operators. The, there, there's a lot of factors here that are not being accounted for. Hmm. Mark Graves with us, president of the Provincial Towing Association of Ontario, talking about the complication involved in removing uh, the trucks out of Ottawa and the safety concerns in and around their operators and uh, still waiting to see the legalities of, of the Emergency Act and such. Mark, uh, between a rock and a hard place, that's for sure. Good luck moving forward. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of people wondering how we got to where we are with the situations, uh, situation that has erupted in Ottawa and how we move forward from that. I want to bring in Carson Jarema, a comment editor with the National Post and has penned a piece in the National Post uh, looking at what, what has led to the invocation of the Emergencies Act and what could uh, be next for Prime Minister Trudeau as a result of all of this. Carson, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you. I'm doing well. Hope you are too. So are, are Canadians aware that the country is as divided as it is? I mean, we've got 80 to 90% of us vaccinated. We should be celebrating. Instead, you know, we've got a, a, a PM who's vilifying the last 10%. Uh, and then we have a, you know, a trucker protest on our hands. Are Canadians aware that they're divided because if you ask some on the left, they'll say, well, no, we're not divided. We're united. We've got like 90% of us vaccinated. Are they confusing the two? Yeah, I, I don't think 
pointing to the number the, the vaccination rate should uh, be considered an endorsement of the the government's pandemic policy. It might be an endorsement of vaccines, but it's not necessarily shouldn't be taken as hand in hand of uh, endorsing the policy. So, for example, you know, a lot of arguments you'll say, hey, these these protesters are anti-mandate, but look at 97% of the popu- of the, of Canadians are vaccinated or of, and therefore they're out of line. Well, you know, I am full-throatedly in favor of vaccination, but I've been opposing mandates since August. I opposed this transportation mandate back, back in August, back before it was popular to do that. Um, and I think that there's a bit of a, there's a misunderstanding of, of how people um, have viewed some pandemic policies and how exhausted people are after two years. Um, it, it seems that at the initial stages of this, uh, of the occupation protest, whatever you want to call it in Ottawa, uh, that the prime minister kind of blew it off. Even the mayor kind of blew it all off. And obviously the police chief, uh, and then boom, two weeks later, uh, they were, it was all front and center for them. And now we have the police chief, uh, that has resigned. Is, is this all falling on the shoulders of the police chief? I think that the the Ottawa police made some very, you know, made some pretty strategic errors at the beginning. Um, the the leaders of the convoy were saying we had a story in the Post and elsewhere that they were the plan was to blockade um, gridlock or blockade Ottawa until they till certain pandemic measures were were lifted. And even by Monday after the protests, the, the city uh, the police were saying we expect the downtown to be cleared by the Wednesday. Well, that's exactly two weeks ago. And so, so I think there was that era there, but throughout this, you had um, different levels of government, uh, provincial government, uh, federal government, who just wanted to pretend this wasn't happening. And one of the issues with Canada is you have different jurisdictional um, divisions that make it, you know, I shouldn't say make it hard for people to help each other out, but make it easy for politicians to say, well, that's not my problem. Um, so, like, you know, you have and in in some ways, the the p- protesters exploited this. So they they're they're illegally parked in Ottawa and they're illegally parked on a highway just north of the border in Windsor. And none of this like this stuff is not legal, but it's certainly not doesn't rise to the level of these of massive sort of criminal activity. Um, so the, the, there was a breakdown in policing. I don't know that it. Is it entirely? I don't think it's fair to put this entirely on the police chief, though. There's lots of other people who have could have who could have um, calmed things down along the way. Uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, the headline in your article from yesterday's uh, National Post: facing Trudeau facing the consequences for uh, cynically uh, uh, politicizing vaccinations. Did the prime minister do enough? Has he done enough to lower the temperature here? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think all he has tried to do is is increase the temperature. I think he wants to um, use the convoy and some of the more extremist elements involved in the convoy as a way to paint the conservatives with that brush. I yeah. think he sees this as a, a political... As he did during the last election. Well, that's, I mean, again, we're, we're, this is a protest over those policies that he introduced in the last election as a way to try and put the conservatives off balance. And the conservatives had a fairly reasonable policy, which was get vaccinated, please. But you know what? Maybe we'll try and accommodate uh, civil servants and transportation workers uh, with regular testing if it's possible. And that got 
uh, framed by the liberals as, you know, they are anti-vaxxers. And it's, it's, yeah, so I don't know that he, he hasn't tried to lower the temperature in at all. Uh, do you think by the time that they get all these trucks removed that these mandates will be irrelevant? Um, you know, the, they were talking about having vaccination requirements for truckers to travel between provinces. Uh, we haven't heard a lot about that again in a while. I mean, again, I, I thought they were I, I thought this was the wrong policy to have back in August, but certainly um, it's certainly completely irrelevant at this point. I I think that the you know being having two shots of vaccination does sort of lower the risk of being infected with the omicron variant but it but that but they're much less effective against omicron so you see lots of um people you know spreading it much more easily and of course at if you get a, a booster that raises your uh, protection against infection back to what it was before but i mean are we going to start including in our in, in vaccine mandates that you now, instead of having two shots, you must have three shots. And then all of a sudden you're just going after people who have done everything they were asked to. And it, it just get, at some point it just becomes ridiculous. Uh, what about the political fallout here? Where, where does this go? Especially with uh, reading the emergency act. I think it depends on how quickly this is taken care of. I think if you have a quick um, end to the to the sort of the protest and people go and there's, it ends up being, you know, no one was, no one gets seriously injured at the end of the day. Um, they, you know, the, obviously there's some, there's there's been reports of some harassment and violence and things like that. But if there's a relative orderly end to the protest in Ottawa, like this week or early next week, I think that, um, I think that Trudeau may come out looking positive on this. I, I, I'm not. I, I, I think that he has done a lot to kind of bring us to this point. But I think that politically, I think he can come out appearing good. Uh, he can come out appearing good if uh, to his supporters if he can if it can be finished this week. Even though it's a policing issue at this point, not necessarily a political one. If that goes on, I think you you have people in the Liberal Party who are already uh, in the Liberal Caucus, and I'm sure Liberal supporters. Who are already starting to question whether the Liberal Party has is pushing too much, um, is is being too divisive with its language, is keeping around unnecessary policies for too long, um, and everybody. I, th- I think I think perhaps the um, the the Liberals and the Prime Minister and the people in his circle underestimate uh, that it isn't just Conservative voters who are exhausted with pandemic restrictions. Uh, we've only got a couple of seconds left. Do you think this will change Canadian politics moving forward? I mean, this is a quite a pivotal moment. Um, we see where we are. Uh, do you think it'll change things moving forward or just divide us more? I, I think it's going to change how we consider policing and the division. I mean, this is kind of a, 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 a wonky answer, but I think it's going to change how we view policing policy and how we divide uh, jurisdiction powers between uh, provinces and uh, the federal government. Carson Jarama with us, comment editor with the National Post. The latest is there now. Uh, Trudeau facing the consequences for cynically pol- uh, politicizing vaccines. Carson, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott.
Todd Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Keeping you up to date uh, as to what's uh, happening in Ottawa, but other news, and I'm sure we'll talk about Ottawa with Ian as well since he's there. Uh, Canada's inflation rate has hit 5.1%, its highest level since 1991. What does this mean for us moving forward, coming out of this global pandemic? And, of course, what is going on in Ottawa? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. Obviously, I can't uh, uh, let you go or, or start a conversation, rather, without asking you about Ottawa. You're living there. What it's like there for you now and your thoughts on the police chief uh, resigning yesterday right. and, and moving forward. Perfectly uh, fine and legitimate questions. I live, um, I, I don't want to tell you I'm in the, quote, the war zone. I live very, very close to it. I live in the Glebe, for those of your listeners that know Ottawa, Glebe is right next door to the downtown, but I'm not in the downtown, it's the street, it's the suburb, but not even a suburb, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of like the beaches is to downtown Toronto, yeah. so it's very similar, and you can't, there's no protest here whatsoever, not where I am, and yesterday I drove down Kent Street, again for people, Kent Street's a major street in Ottawa that runs all the way down to the famous Wellington Street, Wellington Street's where Parliament Hill is. I went down about uh, almost downtown. I was about uh, four blocks from Wellington, okay? Uh, no protest, no trucks, no nothing. Now, I'm not trying to tell you there's no protest in Ottawa. Uh, I'm trying to say that it's extremely localized along two or three or four blocks of Wellington and about two blocks off. Now, what's there, there's a lot there. There is trucks upon trucks there and people upon people. But anybody who thinks that sort of all of Ottawa, and there's a million people in Ottawa, okay, that all of Ottawa is under siege, it's not. (laughs) You can be four blocks away, and you wouldn't even know there's this incredible, incredible protest in downtown Ottawa. I mean, it is very, very localized, but it's extremely intense. What are your thoughts on the Emergency Act being declared? I'm sorry? What are your thoughts on the Emergency Act being used? I, I, I think it was overkill, uh, and I'm very much of the view. Uh, the problem we had in Ottawa, uh, Bill Blair said this. I mean, he's the emergency uh, minister, emergency uh, you know, preparedness minister, and the former chief of police in the university in the sorry, the city of Toronto. And he said five days ago on the record on CBC, he says you don't have it. There's not a lack of laws. He says you have a problem with a lack of enforcement of the laws. Hmm. And and believe me, there's a lot of people saying that. And that is why the chief of police of Ottawa was fired. And he was fired, by the way. And he's a decent man. He's a he's an honorable man. But is he the fall guy here? Ian, is it his fault? Uh, I I would say he's the fall guy. Uh, yeah. I do not blame him for this. There was a lack of preparation, for sure. Um, I mean, let's remember, CSIS, the spy guys, does not report to the city of Ottawa. They are a national security agency that reports right up to the top of the government of Canada. So I'm not trying to point all the fingers at Mr. Trudeau. There's a lot of blame to go around. The The mayor of Ottawa, everyone's widely agreed, was just a disaster in this crisis. Um, the prime minister was throwing high-octane uh, aviation fuel, gasoline, onto the fire by telling the protesters they were misogynist, racist, disgusting, horrible people. Nobody wants to be called names like that. And the chief of police, and of course these people are very, you know, they're, they're breaking the law too, let's be clear. So there's lots of blame 
uh, to go around. But if you believe that in a situation like this, that's so volatile, that you want to be de-escalating, if you believe, if you're of that view, and I am of that worldview, you shouldn't be trying to make the situation worse. You should be trying to lower the temperature. And there's been a lot of flame throwing. I'm using a no pun intended, a lot of flame throwing, a lot of you know, the mayor was inflaming the situation, and uh, and the prime minister was, and cabinet ministers, and nobody seemed to be saying, let's cool the jets, people. Let's calm this down a bit. Um, and very quickly, Scott, because I've, I've, I've lived here all my life, literally. I can remember, my goodness me, protests against the Vietnam War in the yeah. 60s on Parliament Hill, in the 70s against the bombing of Cambodia, anti-abortion. I mean, every imaginable protest has occurred here. That's why you go to Parliament Hill, not trying to exonerate what they've done. This is really, in a league of its own, driving in with three or 400 uh, huge 18-wheel trucks. But we should have been better prepared. We know protests come here all the time. And, 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 you know, this is not something that was, uh, has never happened before. We've got that experience. And yet, for all the knowledge we've had of a protest coming here, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of protests over the years, we were very badly prepared. Police were badly prepared. The city of Ottawa was badly prepared. The government of Canada, I mean, it's, it's Parliament Hill. It didn't, <laughs> you know. So uh, the, the end result was he was the fall guy, but he was by no means... The, I, I think there's going to be more heads rolling. Uh, mm. I, I think that when this is all over, there's going to be more, whether they're bureaucratic heads or whether they're, you know, the mayor is, uh, leaves early from office. There's got, there, I think there's going to be more careers that are uh, wrecked, uh, destroyed uh, by this because it's been a, a, really a, a mess from the beginning uh, right through, and we don't know how it's going to end. There's a lot of rumors right now that they're going to move very, very quickly. They've been handing out um, yeah, all day saw to, that. to all the protesters saying, get out of Dodge right now. <laughs> and we didn't even get to inflation. Uh, Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, giving us uh, his update as he sees it on the ground uh, in Ottawa and what we can expect from this uh, moving forward. Ian, again, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and thank you, Scott. Your thoughts, uh, Michael, where Ottawa is right now after uh, invoking the Emergencies Act, and uh, especially after the resignation of the police chief. Your thoughts on where Ottawa is now? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I sort of said actually recently on Twitter, it's a real gong show. A gong show, thy name is Ottawa. But it's been awful what's been happening there. And the police chief and, and that resignation is sort of the, the proverbial cherry on the top of the Sunday. what has been... Uh, more almost three weeks now of just enormous amounts of problems. The Emergencies Act, though, in itself, um, I've already written about for Troy Media and probably will write internationally as well. Um, there's nothing beneficial about it. It was a terrible precedent to set. To set, um, it really was not necessary overall. When you look at some of the rationale behind it, whether or not you agree or disagree with the Freedom Convoy. It was a peaceful protest for the most part. You know, it, it attracted people from all parts of Canada, from all walks of life. And by and large, with the exception, obviously, of some screwballs and others who are a part of it, we know that, you know, waving, you know, the swastika Confederate flag and doing other things that they shouldn't have done. But 
as we also know, this is what typically happens when protests are organized. You know, whether it's left-leaning, right-leaning, or doesn't have any political ideology, there will always be people and groups that attach themselves to a protest. So whenever the protest is starting off as point A or what its actual objective is, which in this case, as we know, the Freedom Convoy was originally brought forward, you know, to oppose mandatory vaccination of truckers and other essential workers that the Liberal government, the federal Liberal government, had put forward on January 15th, obviously there are going to be others that latch on to it. But the main goals of supporting freedom and, you know, basically being, you know, opposed to a lot of the various government restrictions and lockdown measures that have occurred during COVID-19, those basic principles are, you know, most Canadians, no matter where they come from, tend to agree with or agree with strongly. But the, the Emergencies Act itself, which, as we know, comes historically, it replaced the old War Measures Act, which, ironically enough, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, was the only prime minister to ever use in peacetime, albeit for the FLQ crisis back in 1970, which involved a kidnapping and was a horrible group that was involved. It was, you know, which has basically been called terrorist or terrorist-like, which I think is a fair analogy for the old FLQ. That was at least a rational move by Pierre Elliott Trudeau, whether or not you agreed with it and whether or not you felt there was a better way to handle it, both at the time and historically since that point. The Emergency Act, basically, you have something that's been Primarily a peaceful protest, the Freedom Convoy has been a peaceful protest. You know, as I said, it hasn't been perfect. There have been some bad elements. But overall, it has been managed, it has been managed properly. It was unnecessary to go this far. It extends and overreaches the arm of government or the control of government, albeit on a temporary basis. Just a bad way to do it. And it could have been handled so much differently from the very beginning to until right now. The Emergency Act was not the way to go. What have we learned from this, Michael? How will this change politics, the process moving forward? How will history view this? What are we learning here? It's hard to say because it's still ongoing. But, I I mean, obviously, you know, history writes itself. And the War Measures Act, well, for example, well, it obviously happened 52 years ago, roughly. um, And a lot of people have obviously either forgotten about it didn't know about it or you know just as the march of history goes forward you know other things take precedent and it just sort of slips into the background the war measures act as you may remember scott because you and i are roughly the same age for many many years and in decades it was discussed quite heavily as a moment that yeah it was understandable why pierre Elliott trudeau may have moved in that direction but it was nothing to be proud of it was it was unfortunate that it got to that point but it certainly did end the FLQ crisis, no question about that. The Emergencies Act and what Justin Trudeau, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son has done, may be looked upon differently. I mean, time will tell because of sort of what I said, that it just wasn't necessary to do. It set a terrible precedent. You know, it overextends the reach of government, which is not good in any sort of a democracy, even if it is short term. And even if, for example, Parliament has to, you know, go through and approve the national emergency declared by it. Regardless of all these facts, I think that a lot of Canadians and a lot of historians will look at it as a time that, and an an issue that could have been avoided quite easily had, in my view, at least anyway, the federal liberal government been willing to at least speak with or meet with some of the protesters right off the bat. 
if they didn't want to meet with the organizers, that's one thing, but they could have met with the participants and at least heard their grievances, spoken with them. It may not have changed anything in the end, Scott. We know that. But at least the tensions would have been lowered to some degree, and at least the liberals would have been out there at least trying to show that they were willing to talk to, you know, they were willing to talk to people who opposed their government, opposed their policies, opposed what they were doing with lockdown measures during COVID-19. And also, ironically enough, that was the Justin Trudeau of 2013 when he was first elected, and even of 2015 when he was first elected prime minister in this country, he was willing to talk to others. He did cross the floor and speak with conservatives. He even spoke with Quebec separatists years ago. This prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is not the same man as he was a few years ago. And for that measure, I think as people look back on the Emergencies Act and the period of time that we're in right now, they'll see a different leader, they'll see a weak and ineffective prime minister who almost sort of seems like he's on his last legs and is checked out of this position at times. I just don't think it's going to be looked upon in history as it goes along in a positive light, because how could it be? Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. All right, very sad day. We're finding about the passing of uh, Charles Jurovinsky, which uh, at the age of 92 passed away uh, in his sleep, but uh, left an, an incredible mark on Hamilton, especially in regard to the uh, healthcare industry and, and, and the millions he's left over uh, the years, including just earlier on this week. Uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, Margaret and Charles made another donation of, I think it was five. Point one million dollars uh, to Hamilton Health, so it, it's it's an incredible legacy. He's uh, had an incredible story, uh, an incredible life, and and never thought, uh, or never rather forgot about his uh, second home. His uh, originally born born in Saskatchewan, I believe, and then moved here. Uh, had a construction company, and then uh, eventually Flamborough Downs, and the rest is history, as they say. And uh, after uh, you know selling that after thirty years, uh, just did an awful lot of work as a philanthropist along with his wife uh, here in Hamilton and that's something that will be uh, in this city for decades and decades and generations to come. Let's bring in Pearl Venema, uh, uh, CEO of Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and is with us now. Pearl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm very well and as you said, today is uh, a very sad day and Hamilton and the community uh, and Canada has really uh, lost um, a, a friend and someone who deeply cared uh, about the health of individuals and communities. So it is truly a very sad and reflective day. Why did he have such an interest in specifically health care? Well, Charlie would, would, in conversations, he would say that uh, you can have many, many things in life. And if you don't have your health, you are unable to enjoy to the fullest all aspects of life uh, and living. So it's it really uh, very critically important as a, a personal value and uh, a perspective uh, related to good health. Talk about the impact that his and his wife's his family's donations have made on Hamilton Health Sciences. It's a tremendous amount of money over the years. 
It's, it certainly has uh, in terms of, uh, I think, uh, the community members will, will know as it specifically uh, relates to healthcare really in Hamilton, and it's, it's more than Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, people are very familiar uh, seeing uh, Charles and Margaret and the Jurovitsky name uh, on our hospital buildings and healthcare centers, and their generosity really stretched over uh, the major institutions and others, including uh, hospices. Uh, and so speaking specifically for Hamilton Health Sciences, I've certainly had the privilege of knowing Charles and Margaret for uh, about 15 years. And it's a real honor to have the Jurovinsky name on the, uh, the Cancer Center uh, as, and the Jurovinsky Hospital and Cancer Center as, uh, as we know it uh, today. Uh, their giving uh, and his giving uh, really has encompassed many areas of um, health and health sciences. And uh, there is a, uh, a wonderful uh, fellowship uh, that's in their name, that's around training, which fits with the education mission uh, for academic institutions like Hamilton Health Sciences. And then really countless other uh, investments uh, across uh, the family of hospitals uh, and the Cancer Center uh, within Hamilton Health Sciences. A very special gift as well made uh, to uh, St. Peter's Hospital. So Charles and Margaret um, were very interested in all of the programs and, and services uh, that healthcare institutions offered. And we are very honored uh, that they have uh, supported and of course now an incredible legacy left in a very special partnership between McMaster University, Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton in the creation of the Jurovinsky uh, Research Institute that was established in, in 2019. So that is a, a way to really look at, uh, there's so many examples of how they have supported uh, individual hospitals uh, within our community. And uh, this incredible partnership brings together something that was just so incredibly important to him and to them, uh, to Charles and Margaret as a, uh, as a couple, and that is leaving a legacy uh, to ensure uh, that there is funding for critically important uh, research uh, that at the end of the day, uh, will improve uh, best care and health practices and community and contribute to uh, the well-being of, uh, of, of community and individuals for, for generations. You said uh, in your introduction, uh, a legacy that actually will have an impact for generations uh, to come. And to think, uh, you know, how many times we, we've had discussions over the years about donations they have made and, and, and the work that they have done, you know, even on Valentine's Day, just a couple of days ago, uh, they make another one, which just seems uh, incredible when you think that, you know, in the last days of his life, he's still giving, he's still doing it again. Well, I would reflect as I reflected today on a conversation that I've had with him, you know, uh, Charles would say uh, that uh, it he feels blessed uh, for both he and Margaret uh, to be able to uh, provide 
and make these philanthropic gifts. And, and the, the reason for it, uh, he would say that it gave them great joy to give and to be able to give. And most importantly, uh, for, what it, for what it meant uh, for, for people. And so, you know, yes, you think about it in just a matter of days ago, um, making a very significant gift. And yes, it is uh, five, uh, $5.1 million that was made uh, for the work of the, through the Jurabinsky Research Institute. And that is so in keeping with um, who he was and who they, they are as a couple, or they were as a couple. Uh, and that is to learn more about uh, the incredible work uh, and the clinicians, uh, the researchers, the scientists across uh, the three institutions and how they could put uh, philanthropic dollars uh, to work for important research. So his short answer um, to that question would be, if I can do that, if we can do that every day, to make for a healthier community and advance uh, medicine and healthcare, we will. That would that would be something that uh, he would say. Hmm, an inspiration to all. Uh, Pearl Vinema with a CEO of Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation. Uh, Charles Jurovinsky has passed away at the age of 92, but uh, not without leaving a massive legacy for the city of Hamilton and its healthcare systems. Pearl, thanks so much for sharing the stories. Much appreciated. Be well. You as well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. Only uh, in Canada are we playing uh, soccer on February 16th. <laughs> Why not? It's Mexico, right? What? Any advantage you can get. <laughs> Talk a little bit about this. Well, uh, look, if we, if our players, we, I'm not playing, uh, but if any of our players, if they could schedule a time, as has happened in the past, yeah. where our players have to go down and play when it's like a billion degrees and humid, they do it. And so, look, I'm not, I'm not in favor of cheating. I'm not in favor of, you know, the, there were stories back in the old, I think it was Boston Garden, where um, the folks who ran the Boston Garden would you know, turn off all the hot water in the opponent's dressing room or, whatever, you know, take out the nice. light bulbs or whatever. Like, and just do something to screw with them. I'm not talking about that, but, it, you know, the weather is the weather. If you can use your geographic advantage, why wouldn't you? And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, for days that you could be playing here, uh, it could be absolutely worse. It's, it didn't fall on a bad day. Uh, tomorrow would be something different, obviously, but, uh, at least we got temperatures above, at least we've got temperatures above zero. Don't you wish that this game was going to be played in a blizzard, though? I mean, wouldn't it? It would be interesting if it was tomorrow. If you're going to do it, like really do it. If you're going to do it, have it. Do you remember a couple of years ago? You may not remember this. You may not have watched it. Some people will remember this. The Buffalo Bills had a, had a game. I, I don't know if it was a playoff game. I don't think it was, but they had a game. And it I, was my son, Buffalo my son Bills. and I, my son and I were at the Snow Bowl. We were there that day. A couple of years ago. Yes, okay. sir. Where the, where the one Buffalo player, I think, got a touchdown and then dove into a giant snowbank or, or tried to tackle someone and you just saw him slide through snow. 
why not? I mean, I don't. Soccer has obviously different requirements because you have to be able to kick the ball on the ground. If it was that bad, they wouldn't even play the game; they would postpone yeah. it. But uh, as I say, I mean, if, if the if the idea here is to make the other team within the rules to make the other team as uncomfortable as possible. I mean, look, when Canada played against, I think it was Mexico as well, in a World Cup qualifying yep. event in Edmonton a couple of yep. weeks ago, uh, it was like it was blistering cold, like your lips would fall off out there kind of cold. Mm-hmm. Why not? Use it to your advantage. Uh, speaking of that game in Buffalo, uh, I remember because my son and I left here, and it was a nice day, and all we heard on the drive down to Buffalo was how bad the weather was going to be. We showed up, we started doing a bit of tailgating, and it seemed fine. By the time we got yep. into the stadium, you could not see the other side of the stadium. It was that bad. And what they had was people standing along every single, like every five yards, and as soon as the play stopped, they tried to, they'd take like leaf blowers and they try to blow the snow so at least they could see the yard markers uh on the field it was absolutely incredible to be a part of you were you were lucky though because at least you got snow one of the one of the times i went down to a buffalo game it was a monday night game i don't know what year sam weish was coaching the opponent it was during the buffalo bills glory years of the 90s um sam weish was coaching the cincinnati Bengals, and we went to a monday night game and about halfway through the first quarter it began to freezing rain on us and at least the snow sort of hits you and just sort of yep. sits there. The freezing rain just cuts right through everything you're wearing. Yes. And anyone who's been to a Buffalo Bills game knows there is nowhere indoors unless you have a private box. There is no, even the bathrooms are open to yep. the <laughs> There is nowhere to go to get relief from this. It was, And then we didn't take any change of clothes or anything. We weren't thinking about that. So even the drive home, you've got the heat blasting. You're That's still it. You're freezing soaked. to death. All yeah, right, anyway, who's, on so who's on the show tonight? Who's on the show tonight? We are going to be doing something that we almost never do. I'm actually playing a uh, an old interview, not that old, about a year and a half ago, uh, with Charles Jurvinsky. We talked to him. Oh, very a cool. After a month after COVID started, he had given about three and uh, three point three million dollars to the hospitals here to fight COVID, mm. and we chatted with him at great length about his charitable endeavors. And so we're going to be. Uh, we're going to be playing that first up today because uh, I think everyone now knows that Charles Jurvinsky passed away today. Leg- well, I mean, a legend. Is that a fair enough word? I don't know if that's strong enough yep. around here. But uh, uh, yeah, well, you're right. It may it may not be strong enough. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the six o'clock news, including uh, a former interview with uh, Charles Jurvinsky, and of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Two. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to the two Wills, Lisa and Dave, for producing. Or sorry, Lisa and Dave in the newsroom, the two Wills for producing. As always, we leave it to you, the good CHML taxpaying listener, to have the last word. As Bruce from Hamilton, uh, just two words I think Pierre's got for his son right now. Bottle, duddle. Oh, my, my. Night. <laughs>